0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello, it's another episode of Science with Dr. Carl, and this time the guests keep on coming. We're joined by Professor Claire Collins to chat through all things food, nutrition, and diet, particularly how do foods affect our mood? Do green supplements have the same effect as actual vegetables? And how many times a day should we poo? You know I love a poo question. Let's get into it. It is Science with Dr. Carl. We've got Professor Claire Collins with us from the University of Newcastle. Carl, we always love when Claire's on. We
1: love when Claire's on, especially because she's changed my life. And so now I have mushrooms at least once a week um, and tomatoes as often as I can. Why do I have mushrooms and tomatoes? What kind of mushrooms? Whatever she says. <laughs>
2: well, well, the main reason Carl has mushrooms because I told him is how much they lower risk of all-cause cancers but they especially lower the risk for breast cancer about thir- by about 30%. This wow. is what the research is showing. But what's um, really interesting about mushrooms too is that the high dose was equivalent to a button mushroom a day. So that's one of, you know, put all your eggs in the basket. Well, put mushrooms in there too.
1: Wow. Oh. And tomatoes?
2: Yeah, tomatoes contain lycopene, and that's a really interesting uh, nutrient, particularly around risk of prostate cancer. So... That's uh, And tomatoes, how, how easy is that? Mm-hmm. You know, cherry tomatoes, they're, they're really a fruit, which is interesting about tomatoes. So you can eat them as a snack.
1: And with tomatoes, you can stop the tomato pasty sort of stuff, like from uh, bolognese, from staining your non-glass container by wiping the inside with a little bit of olive oil first. Mm-hmm. And then that takes up. Okay. To, and so Claire, as you said, is a laureate professor. She, she, she knows all this stuff. She's not one of these people who's got their nutrition certificate by paying $20 online. She's been in the business for years, decades. And
0: Claire, it's been a few months since you've been on the show. What's What have you been working on? What's what's something that's kind of, yeah, that you've learnt recently? or?
2: Yeah, well, I think um, I'm still working on the dietary metabolome. So this is kind of like your own personal fingerprint of nutrients that appear in your urine and your blood after you eat food. So I hope to be able to create like the map or the – gold standard of healthy urine and healthy metabolites in your plasma, but still having heaps of fun translating all our information for people. And we've got this website called No Money, No Time. It's free. If you sign up, do the healthy eating quiz, sign up and make an account, you can get six weeks of free emails and reminders about how to eat healthy for whatever reason you choose from the list of goals,
0: mm. Claire. You are doing a service, and you are answering our questions directly. So, if you've got one, one, oh four three nine seven five seven triple five, we're going to start with Hayden in Dubbo, Doctor Hayden. You're kicking us off. What do you want to know? Hey, doc-
3: hey doctors, Hey, are you going? My question is: Does different foods have an effect on di- our different moods?
2: Yeah, it really it does. And the biggest difference is a s- broad classification of food as either being healthy or unhealthy. So, you know, the five food groups, everybody knows them, vegetables, fruit, whole grains, or the unhealthy, plain language, junk foods. People who eat more of the basic foods, especially vegetables and fruit, have higher levels of happiness. It really does affect your overall mood. We actually just worked with Headspace recently and created a free downloadable mood food book and that's on No Money, No Time if you go to that website and go to the ebook section because they contacted us to say, you know, how can we, you know, save money but also eat better to help us feel better? So we decided to develop that together. Mm. And, you know, there's the nutrients in food that are needed for your brain and your brain function as well. And uh, when you eat unhealthy food, you miss out on all of those. So we work with them, developed a book, and we decided to make it available for everybody, make it freely downloadable.
0: So what are some examples of food that, yeah, might, might not be that best, might not be the best for mood and, and why? So
2: if you eat like something that's highly processed, for example, it won't contain, it won't be rich in the B vitamins now, the B vitamins are needed by all the neurons in your brain. They help fire up the, the neurons and release energy in, in your brain. B vitamins are kind of like a, what a box of matches is to a bonfire. No point having lots of fuel on board by the food you eat if it can't actually fire up in your brain. B vitamins also are important for memory. So if you're deficient in them, you can develop these two different syndromes, cause a psychosis, and Wernicke's and Kevilopathy, they go on to be permanent, permanently damage your brain. So that's just one example. The other interesting thing is that all the range of dietary fibers that come in those basic foods, like the different grains, quinoa, um, you know, rice, pasta, whole grain bread, when they get down to your colon, the bugs there metabolize them and they produce specific components like fatty acids that can go and give preference towards your brain and your brain activity. So all of these little micro things all add up together to make you feel better.
1: Now, Claire, you're talking about these bacteria in your gut and you were telling me a couple of months ago about how what we call indigestible fiber actually can be digested by the gut bacteria to make fatty acids. So it's not like it's totally useful Useless, like fiber apparently is very Yeah, that's important. right.
2: Fibers way more than just stopping you from getting constipated because all of these different type of fibers arrive there, the different species of bugs, that's called your gut flora or the commensal bacteria, you might have heard, they like each like different types of fiber. The fatty acids are called short chain fatty acids, which means they can be absorbed back into your gut, and not only do they work on the brain, some recent research is showing they work on lung tissue as well. They can work on the blood pressure regulation system and help lower your blood pressure. So there's, it's way, way more complicated, of course, than just um, you know, having a high-fibre diet, but it's working to help you from the
0: inside out. We've got Elle in Canberra here. Elle, you've got a question about powder supplements.
3: Hello. Hi, doctors. Um, I was wondering, can greens powder supplements give you the same benefits and nutritional value as if you were to eat the recommended amount of vegetables?
2: Um, actually, no, because whatever's been powdered up to make it green will still be a limited range of vegetables. And like we were just talking about dietary fibers, you can't dehydrate dietary fiber The 30 grams you need per day, which is like two tablespoons, and shrink that down and fit it all in a capsule. So you might get some of the bioactive components. These are called phytonutrients, and they've got great names like chlorogenic acid and k and things like this, quercetin. So they have effects on other parts of your body, typically the cancer regulation pathways. In the early stages of carcinogens, that just means causing cancer, Some of those components are able to turn the cancer pathways back. But sometimes if you have too much, they actually turn the volume and speed up. So don't rely on those supplements. Spend the money on the actual vegetables and fruit. And if you don't like cooking, you know, little bags of baby spinach and the cherry tomatoes, they don't need any cooking at all. Avocados as
1: well. And uh, just last night for fun, I went looking for how much fibre is there in a... A green apple is four grams. <coughs> a red apple is three. A mango is only 1.8. That broke my heart.
2: Oh, you'll just have to eat four
1: mangoes. That's, it. that's right. So you're saying 30 grams of fibre per day.
2: Yeah, 25 to 30. That's the that's the target for women, adult women yeah. and men. But w- even more important than that is take a look when you do number twos to see whether they sink or float. And if they float or and they're not rocks then you're likely to be getting enough fiber mm-hmm. and fluid for you to keep your particular bowel healthy and functioning well. You know, we talked about those um, short-chain fatty acids. The mm-hmm. other amazing thing they do is like the acids. So they lower the pH in your colon and that actually nukes or stops the unhealthy bacteria growing that can cause cancer, that can facilitate the cancer process. So, you know, lots of fiber
0: keeps your bowel your bowel healthy. We got Mick from Wollongong here. Mick, what do you want to know?
1: Good morning, doctors. Um, yeah, I'm just curious about the probiotic bacteria that you find in like kombucha and kefir. If, if those um, products are used in something, say like an ice cream, what happens to the bacteria? I guess it's a two-part question. First up, what happens to bacteria when they become frozen? Do they actually die or do they just go to sleep? And then what happens to them when they hit your gut? Do they reactivate? If they haven't been killed, do they just reactivate when they hit your gut? Like what happens in that process? Okay, so with regard to probiotics in normal use, not having been frozen, Claire knows so much more about that. I'll wait for that for a second. But with regard to freezing, it turns out that what happens in cells is something like what happens to a bottle of water that you put in the freezer because you want it to freeze in a hurry at a party, and you forget about it, and then suddenly you hear this cracking noise, and you go to the freezer, and there is a block of ice in the shape of a bottle surrounded by broken glass everywhere. Broken wow. yeah. So in the same way, with your cells, which have got some degree of water in them, lots of water, that can happen, and in the process of freezing, all the delicate biological machinery gets mushed when it goes rock hard. Now, do you know about the concept, Mick, of absolute zero, like 273.15 below zero centigrade? You know about absolute zero? Not a clue. (laughs) But you know you can go a lot colder than zero on the the scale. Sure. So you can go down to minus 273.15, and that's absolute zero. And down there you're finding liquid hydrogen liquid helium. And it, it turns out that there is a creature called the tardigrade, and it can survive going down to two degrees above absolute zero. Minus wow. 271 degrees, and it does weird stuff that we don't fully understand. But in general, that's not happening with the probiotics. If they get frozen too much and freezing, I think, is around minus 18, it, they might have got enough salt in them to stop them turning into a solid lump and then damaging within the probiotic bacteria, the little biological machinery. They might or might not, but going to regular probiotics...
2: Yeah, well, to be called a probiotic, there's a whole lot of things that that particular species has to be able to do. It's got to survive the stomach acid first up, then it's got to uh, survive through the whole digestive tract and all the processes that happen there. And then when it gets to your colon, it has to be able to not only attach to your gut wall, it has to be able to reproduce. And there has to be safety and efficacy, just means does it work, testing. So not that many species can do that. So if you go, to, if you go into the, you know, like the yogurt aisle, typically, you'll see yep. ones that say they've got live bacteria. Those ones have been tested for being able to do all of those things. Now, I wrote an article on this for The Conversation, and I was really surprised at how few studies had then shown whether surviving and reproducing in your colon meant that that probiotic was good for your health. The main area where there is evidence is for people who are on antibiotics all the time and get antibiotic-associated diarrhoea. Mm. But for all, all right. the other claims, you know, I, I was a bit disappointed at how little evidence there was for that that bit. So if you've been on antibiotics or you have a lung condition, you're on antibiotics regularly, then definitely jump, jump in. And the, the reason why they sell some of them, those little tiny like shot containers, is because yep. you need... A small amount, at least once a day, ideally more than once a day, to boost the chances of those little bugs actually surviving that whole journey, sticking to your colon wall, and then doing what they're supposed to do, which is encourage the growth of the healthy, the, of those healthier bacteria, and elbow out the the nasties.
0: Oh, so there is a bit of a journey to it, and a few steps, you know, yeah. a few barriers to entry, if you will. We've got mm. Tristan here. Tristan, I've been getting a few questions about this. What do you want to know this morning?
3: I uh, just oh hey doctors. Um I just wanna know, like see so it advertised and you can buy it in the shops like alkaline water. What's is there a specific pH level in water for drinking and
1: all that that's ideal? Ah. Yeah. If um your bo- your body is slightly alkaline, right? It's around yeah. seven point three five and then people will say that your body turns acid and therefore you should have alkaline water to turn it back. If We have a phrase for this in medical land for if your body has gone acid and that phrase is incompatible with life or being polite. That's a polite term. The impolite term is you're dead. It is possible... For somebody to have their body go slightly acid, which is a pH under 7, but you need an intensive care unit and people who know what they're doing and $10,000 a day, which is covered by your taxes, which we spread across society. In general, it's a lot of crap. You, you cannot have your body go acid and still be alive. The alkali water is just a way of getting money out of you and selling you water they've, they've modified it with time they've over the years they've called it unique water or structured water and mate it's just water it's a con yeah okay
0: claire do you have anything there to add go. to that
2: carl dr carl has just summarized that perfectly so no further comments
0: wow yeah a few questions coming through about alkaline water we've got rj in summer hill rj you got a question about fasting
2: yeah hi um I've been doing intermittent fasting for about 10 years on and off, um, and also doing a bit of calorie restriction, playing around with that. Um, but what I've noticed is that on the days that I fast, especially at nighttime, um, I have to pee a lot more, and I'm generally more thirsty as well. So I'm just wondering if there's something behind that. Yeah, that's likely that your body is trying to like flush the ketones out through your kidneys. So it, you can be more likely to um, become dehydrated. So drinking lots... What's interesting about all the types of fasting diets, so there's intermittent fasting, there's the eight-hour fast where you don't eat anything between like 6 p.m. and 10 a.m. the next day, there's the every-other-day alternate-day fasting, the Fast 800. Those approaches have been shown to, uh, to work, and like for yourself, it's already working. So, and for some religions, people regularly fast. So those approaches work, and the way they work is by they help restrict the amount of kilojoules, so you end up eating less. That's the bottom line. But if you want to know more about intermittent fasting and potentially the science on other fad diets, we've got a course underway called a MOOC, a massive open online course, The Science of Weight Loss Dispelling Diet Myths. And that six-week program Contains all the information that's in our dietitian heads that we wish everybody could could know, but you can never get across in a one-off consultation. So you can ask lots of questions on that too, the science of weight loss.
0: So A-M-O-O-K-A. Is that what it is? A MOOC?
2: A MOOC stands for a massive open online course. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, there's lots of these around the world. So, um, And I led one for my team with my team from the University of Newcastle on what I thought people wanted to know about and like 57,000 people have done it. So the science of weight loss, dispelling diet myths.
0: What do you think is one of the biggest diet myths?
2: The biggest diet myth? That there's magic foods, you know, that if I just eat this one thing, the fat will melt away. Mm. I think that's really common and that's why you keep seeing fad diets because somebody else thinks of some other magic thing that they can sell as a pill, a potion or package up. And what's really frustrating for people is that eating healthily is really hard work because you get constant bombardment advertising that says, you deserve this junk food product. And my brain always goes, no, you don't. You don't deserve to be treated that badly by those junk foods. You deserve really nourishing healthy foods so that your body and your brain work well. And that's the motivation then for us creating our no money, no time.
1: And then, then RJ, with the um, having a lot of water when you're fasting, assuming, but you're not, assuming that you're burning one kilogram of fat a day, you're not. But if you are burning one kilogram of fat a day, you will have to inhale 2.9 kilograms of oxygen. You'll make 2.8 kilograms of carbon dioxide and 1.1 kilograms of water. But the best you can do... I came across with some guy who didn't eat for 54 weeks. Do not try this. Many people die for various reasons, including potassium abnormalities and the gut turning itself into a knot and strangling itself. But he didn't eat for 54 weeks and he lost weight at 2.2 kilograms a week. The second thing is what Claire mentioned, which is that you're getting all these ketones and there's a part of your brain called the pituitary that puts out a chemical called ADH, antidiuretic hormone, to keep your body's saltiness, whatever that is, at a certain level. It's, around, it's supposed to be around 249 milliosmoles. I'm not sure what a milliosmole is, but I'm very confident that it's a 1,000 times smaller than a regular osmol. But as part of keeping your body's saltiness at the right level, it will start dehydrating you.
0: We've got Bailey in Albury here. Bailey, you got a question about corn kernels. Yeah, g'day. Um, just corn. Now, I've grown up on old folktale. Uh, this is a loaded question, by the way, doctors. But um, first of all, does our body digest corn? Because I've heard that the body, when you eat corn, it just goes straight through and out the other side. And from last night, look, turn around, and that's true, but obviously not all of it. I want to know if that's true or not. And then also, what nutrients do we gain from corn?
2: Okay. (laughs) I was going to suggest you experiment on yourself by having a look at your number twos to see if any corn, some of the corn will have been fermented in your colon. So you, and the other thing though, is that on that digestive journey, some of the digestive processes may have started. So you may have absorbed some of the vitamin C, which is water soluble, but as it travels down through your body, by the time you get to, to the colon, It will have like rehydrated, you know, a bit like if it was dried out a bit and you have managed to extract some some of the vitamin C, then it'll be rehydrated by the time it leaves your body. But it's still a good source of fiber. Your body is going, oh, it's like a hot potato. I don't want that corn and keeps on passing it down. So it's improving your transit time. So transit time as well as stool consistency, so whether you've got rock hard poos or softer poos, actually relate to that risk for um,
1: bowel cancer. And an unpopped corn kernel, so we're just talking about regular corn, not trying to make popcorn, roughly the size of a pea, 75% carbohydrate, mostly starch, so you should chew a lot, not swallow, and water's about 15 to 20%, and then fat proteins and minerals make up the rest. The bit uh, that you will see floating around in your feces is called the pericarp, P-E-R-I-C-A-R-P, and that can withstand a pressure of 90 tonnes per square metre. It's really strong, and so that's a, a sort of an essential thing why you can pop corn, but you can't pop wheat or rice. And so you can ch- I've tried actually chewing corn like crazy to try and chew up the pericarp, and after about a minute of chewing, you're going, I'm bored, it's still there, I'll swallow it, and you look the next day, and there it is. So it's not the whole corn kernel it goes through, but the pericarp, mate, you're going to be working really hard to digest that.
2: And a lot of people don't realise, Dr. Carl, that corn actually is a whole grain. Oh. So, yeah, so corn and popcorn, you know, because it's not bread, you go, oh, is that a whole grain? But it actually is a whole grain. So it's, it's another thing to add on to your list. It doesn't matter whether it's fresh, canned or frozen.
0: We've got Jennifer from Carlingford here. Jennifer, what's your question?
3: Um, I had bariatric surgery just over a year ago and it's taken nearly a year for me to be able to drink just plain water. And I was wondering why water hurts. If I put a little bit of lemon or mint in it, it's fine. But just drinking plain water, it's like swallowing marbles. Why is that?
2: Well, uh, you know, I actually can't answer your question Can on I? That. Before we get yeah. into it,
0: actually, um, Claire, you've written an article about bariatric surgery recently. Yeah, what, what is that for anyone who doesn't know?
2: Okay, so bariatric surgery or sometimes called metabolic surgery is a procedure that's designed basically to reduce the stomach volume. There's a whole range of operations. And in doing that, it actually improves appetite regulation independent of the fact that stomach volume is smaller. So it's pretty common after the surgery because the stomach volume might only be quarter to a half cup size to go through a long period of follow-up in order that you don't become malnourished, you know, because it's now harder and more important to have a really nutrient-rich intake, so so that doesn't happen. Anyway, but bariatric surgery is the only effective treatment we have for improving weight-related health at the moment. There are new medications coming, but, uh, um, you know, in Australia, the main problem we have is that it's it's very unusual for it to be available through um, public hospitals. There are some public hospitals who have a service, but if this is something that you're considering, definitely go and speak with your doctor. And I wrote a whole article with an endocrinologist colleague about the sorts of questions to talk to your doctor about whether you're eligible, because it really can make a massive difference to improving people's weight-related health.
0: So, is there any kind of reason that the water maybe isn't feeling like it's going down correctly or the only
2: thing I could think and I, I'd encourage you to go back and talk to your surgeon the the surgical team and if you if you're seeing a um, a dietitian as well they're the people who are likely have to have heard of heard of that or have an idea as to what's going on.
1: And uh, can you just take us um, through it again, Jennifer? You're saying that when you swallow water, can you tell us about the sensation as it goes from your mouth and hopefully ends up in your stomach?
3: Well, it's okay now. It's been um, just a year and a half since I've had the surgery, but for the first year, it was like um, if you swallowed something without chewing it and it feels like it's stuck in your throat...
1: So you would be drinking guaranteed water. You could see it was water, but when you swallowed it, instead of just swishing down like regular, it would feel as though you'd swallowed a quarter of a carrot or something?
3: Yeah, something like that. But if I put any flavour in it, like I'd, I'd squeeze lemon juice or put some mint leaves in the water, and that was fine.
1: The only other... I've, t-
3: I've talked to my doctor and my dietitian, and they said yeah. it's a very common symptom, but nobody knows why.
2: Yeah, that's right. The only thing is sometimes you get more reflux too, you know, like some of that yeah. stomach contents come back up. So it could be that you you worked out through trial and error what gave you the least irritation. But, you know, and that's why we wrote this article. So to help people be aware of like both the positives as well as some of the the negatives and and risks associated with the surgery.
1: I read an article about it in New Scientist, which said that in the early days, they thought it was just straight mechanical. We've put a band, you know, elastic band, nylon around the tummy, around the stomach. You can't fill it as much. Obviously, that's why you can't eat as much. And then with time, they found there was a case of a woman who when she had her sugared tea, it tasted like she was drinking fish. There was a complete, did anything like that happen with you, Jennifer?
3: Yeah, I, um, the first time I had a a bite of a cinnamon donut, because I hadn't had one for a year, but the first time I had that, it tasted like fish, which kind of ruined the whole experience of treating myself.
1: Right, so there's something else going on besides the straight mechanical thing, we're interfering with hormones, and there's some complicated feedback in the brain that we're still working out between taste and so forth.
2: Well, once upon a time, we thought there was only taste receptors on your tongue, but it's recognised there is actually taste receptors all along your whole gastrointestinal tract. So I don't know the exact answer, but it's likely to be linked with something like that. But I still think the recognition, you know, it's not just a mechanical smaller stomach, that it there's a change in the way appetite hormones are manufactured that really helps uh, people in terms of both appetite and weight-related health. So like I said, at the moment... All of the evidence is saying that you get big improvement in your in your health once you get through those initial uh, side effects like you've experienced.
1: And so, there's yeah, taste.
3: It's the best thing I've ever done.
1: Ah, now this following on from Claire was saying about test receptors, there are taste buds on your tongue. Come in five different varieties. They're collections of millions of cells, and then there are taste receptors, which are a tiny part of the cell, and they monitor and adjust the local environment. They're in the gut, and they're in many parts of the body, including on the testicles. And I've done a TikTok on this, saying why well, you should not dangle your testicles in soy sauce. Oh yeah, that, that was a phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, right. Okay, it, it's a con.
0: We've okay. got <laughs> it's a con. In short, we've got Lou in Belgrave here. Lou, you got a question about poo? We love them.
1: Come on
3: down. Yes, I would like to know: Is it possible to poop too many times in one day? And if so, what's the healthy average amount?
2: Well, there's a big variation in the number of times that's normal. So anywhere from a couple of times a day to only once or twice a week. But what it comes down to is what's the consistency of the bowel motions. If it's totally runny, a bit like you've got diarrhoea, then chat to your doctor. You need to find out whether you've got some underlying gut infection or some malabsorptive condition, you know, anything from lactose intolerance to a giardia infection um, sometimes you poop more after you 've been on antibiotics because some of those bugs in your colon are killed off, and so you can 't actually process some of that extra fiber but if it 's supposed to look like a like the inside of a sausage you know soft and pliable, not rocks and not not really loose runny unformed so yeah big big variation in terms of what 's normal but and what 's normal for you so yeah i 't it's a good idea to take a look. A lot of people never look at their number ones or number twos, but they tell you so much
3: about your health.
0: You've got to have a little peek. We've got Griffin here from Kyabrum. Griffin, what do you want to know this morning?
3: Uh, hi. I've just heard a bit about the good fat, bad fat debate from books and online, and um, especially like the trans fat and what's ha- what happens to them when they um, get heated up, like in frying and stuff. And I just wanted to know your opinion on that, Claire.
1: Um, after 9-11 happened in America some years ago, the headline came up shortly in the New York Times that Girl Scouts, girl guides in America, kill more Americans each year than 9-11 ever killed by feeding them trans fats in the Girl Scout cookies.
2: Oh, that sounds terrible. (laughs) But the difference between good fats and bad fats is broadly on how saturated or unsaturated they are. So... The way to think about that is fats contain double bonds. So if you think about if you're already shaking someone's hands or holding onto someone's two hands, you can't make any more friends, can you? So polyunsaturated fats are kind of like an octopus. They can make a lot of friends because they've got lots of free free arms and so can have lots of positive interactions. So they're the healthy fats. The uns, the saturated fats, that's things like in butter and kofa, they can make no friends. All of their double bonds are fully taken up. Their dance card's full. Ah. And all, all they can do is go around and hang out, hang out on your arteries, make them hard, invite other people like them to the site, increase inflammation and, you know, make your arteries really hard and increase your risk of a heart attack. Trans fats are weird because they're polyunsaturated but their bonds are flipped over in the chemical structure like a mirror image across some of the bonds. So they actually act like they're saturated fats. In Australia, hardly any saturated fats in our foods and processed foods. In America, there's been heaps and heaps. And that's why there's a difference in the types of foods available in Australia and the the types of fats that are used. So we don't have to actually worry about trans fats. But when you see in Australia like a saturated fat, trans gets incorporated into that. Saturated plus trans, they're the nasty ones no matter what you read. They do increase your LDL, which is the bad cholesterol that gets stuck on your arteries. The polyunsaturates, including omega-3s, which are a special category of saturated fats, they help reverse that hardening of the, of the arteries.
1: But then what about dairy fats? They're saturated, but then isn't there a further complication of long chain and short chain?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. See, it's never, never straightforward. <laughs> never there are some special saturated fats, Carl. Um, palmitic acid, it's always nasty. Um, Lauric acid, which actually can increase the good fat, HDL, which is like the friendly one. And um, and then there's, and then, what did I say? I said palmitic, um, Lauric. And then there's myristic acid, which is another unusual fat that is kind of inert when it comes to that. So we tend to, to make it a little bit easier to understand, we tend to talk about all the nasties together. But in nutrition, there is always an exception to every, to every rule. So yeah, so I don't think I've really clarified that to you other than to say it's quite complex. But <laughs> if you jump on no money, no time, we've got a section called hacks and myths. And we've got lots of articles about healthy foods. And if those hacks and myths don't satisfy your specific questions, just put a little comment in the red box and say, no, I want an article about maristic palmitic and lauric acid, and we'll write one for you.
0: We've got Lauren from Newport. Lauren, what is your question? Hi, um, I just wanted to ask, does microwaving your food kill nutrients in it? Microwaving,
2: in fact, is one of the most conserving cooking methods for nutrients in, in food. So heat and light and water all either destroy the nutrients or they leach out in the water. So microwave is a double winner because you need a shorter amount of cooking time and you don't need to add in any water. Even if you're cooking vegetables, you actually don't need water because when you cook it, they still create steam and you'll see there's always some water at the end. So and the other positive thing about microwaving, particularly at the moment, is a shorter cooking time means you'll you, – Use less power with power bills set to rise. Microwaving is the clear winner. The other one for conserving nutrients is
1: stir frying. And the way this myth arose was in the early days of microwaving, people were saying, oh, microwaving is evil and will cause cancer. And somebody did a study where they got a small cup of milk and they left it in the microwave oven for 10 minutes. It just burned and then kept on burning, and it just got hotter, and it stayed at 100 degrees C, but all sorts of nasty chemicals got created in the same way that if you boil milk on the stove for 10 minutes of boiling, and you're creating sort of brown chemicals, it will go bad. And then they looked at those bad chemicals and said, hey, there's something that causes cancer, and they simplified that down to, oh, by the way, I did this at home in my microwave, and it took about three weeks for the smell to go away from the inside of the microwave. It smelled so bad you had difficulty, it was gagging. There's no way you'd drink it. And so from this fact that if you overheat anything for too long, it'll turn can- car- carcinogenic and give you cancer-causing chemicals, that's how the myth that microwaving food is bad for you began.
0: Well, this leads in well to a question that Ebony Boidu from our breakfast show was asking earlier. She will zap her coffee about two to three times during the show. Is there anything that's impacting the taste or the caffeine by microwaving your coffee? You know, when it goes a bit cold and you've got to give it a bit of a hit.
2: I think if it is, it's going to taste different. So if it stays tasting the same, then no, you know, then no. But if you go, oh, now that tastes really bad, quite often when you do overcook things, they start to taste bad. Like you think if you roast something in the oven and then you cook it for too long and it, it gets to that point of almost burning it actually starts tasting bad. So that's going to be your main clue.
1: And part of the taste of coffee include chemicals with names such as, there's 200 of them, cadaverine being the characteristic smell of a cadaver or a rotting dead body, and putrescine, a chemical found in faeces. And the weird thing is that these chemicals in reasonable doses smell bad. In tiny, tiny doses, they make coffee delicious.
2: Well, if you're going to talk about coffee chemicals, I want to mention KWOL and Cafistrol because they're the ones that act on that carcinogenic pathways and can turn it back to reduce your risk of cancer. And this is for a number of cancers. Coffee drinkers actually have a lower risk like liver cancer, for example. And then these other two cool ones called cathic acid and chlorogenic acid that act on the glucose sensitivity pathways and coffee drinkers, even decaffeinated coffee drinkers have a lower risk for type 2 diabetes. Now, only caveat is that these are observational studies because you can't do a randomized control trial to see if you give somebody liver cancer. So, you know, in recent years, there's been so much good news about coffee with the exception of lung cancer, which they think there's a residual confounding because in the olden days, coffee drinking was always associated with smoking, which already
0: set you on that that pathway for that. So we've got Sam from Newey who wants to know a question about gas. Sam? Uh, hey, Yeah, I just had a question about garlic. Basically, whenever I have garlic, it makes me quite gassy. And I was just wondering if that was
3: fairly common or if there could be, you know, some underlying cause of that.
2: It's probably because it contains a thing called fructo oligosaccharides, and long-chain polyols and a couple of other words added in the middle there. And they're types of carbohydrates that some people are particularly not good at digesting. So they end up all the way down in your colon for those bacteria we've been talking about a lot today. And then, you know, for some people, it actually can lead to more frequent bowel motions. But something that's really interesting about smells of bowel motions is that the smelliest farts or number twos are when sulfur is released. And people always think, oh, yeah, it's when I eat those onions and those cauliflower and the and the broccoli. And that's true. They do lead to more sulfur being released when the bacteria get onto them. But the other really high source of sulfur is actually from meat. So super high meat eaters or super high protein supplement um, consumers, they can end up with some cysteine, and um, sulfur-containing amino acid in their colon. The bacteria have a field day and you lose all your friends because you have sulfur-containing farts that smell like rotten egg, egg gas.
0: Mm. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. Make sure you give it a like, rate, review, whatever you got to do to keep us at the top of your feed. This episode was produced by Lou Hill. I'm Lucy Smith and we'll catch you next
3: week. Hey, it's Jess Perkins here. Or Judge Jess Perkins, if you will. Join Hobber, Hing and myself for the Simply The Jest podcast, where we bring you Australia's most chaotic, embarrassing and hilarious stories on different topics. And to be honest, there's some pretty wild stuff. And I noticed a leech on my mate's chest. Uh, I look down and there's one right on the end of my uh, <laughs> my business. Rip that one off and just blood goes everywhere. <sighs> there's new episodes each week, including extra stuff that we just could not put to air, a.k.a. the good sh- Simply the Jest. Listen now on the Triple J app.